Well, welcome to Prairie View. It's uh, wonderful to have you here if you are our guest. And uh, it's wonderful to have you here if you're here every week as well. I want to give a special thank you before we really get started to all those folks who have been praying for for us and uh, for our church over the last few weeks. Uh, especially a big thank you to those who have come to us and said, we are praying for you, praying for our church, for the elders, and uh, for you specifically. I know that Aaron and I have been able to see how God has uh, answered that prayer through the peace and energy and strength and patience that uh, he has provided to us. I'm sure all the other elders will be able to uh, say the same thing. Thanks also to those who have prayed particularly for uh, the preaching of the word last week and this week and beyond. And uh, that's, that's much appreciated. So on that note, let's uh, pray for our time together in God's word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance that we have to open your word and see what you have for us in it. And uh, thank you for the way that you've been at work already in my life this week through the uh, material that's here. Thank you for the good conversations that Erin and I have been able to have as uh, she's helped me prepare. And I pray that uh, even though this is a very ordinary sermon, that you would be able to work through the preaching of your word and the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, so that uh, you will accomplish your work among your people in this room this morning. It's in your great name that we pray, Lord. Amen. We are continuing right where we left off last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have a Bible within reach, either your own or one of the churches or perhaps somebody else's, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Last week we looked at verses 5 through 9 and we saw that God has many different servants that he has equipped in different ways for different roles within the church and that uh, working through many different trials and challenges in our lives, he is working towards one great goal, which is gathering a people which bear the mark of his son, Jesus Christ. This week we will be exploring uh, the next idea that Paul gets to in the chapter, uh, which is uh, that God will judge everybody according to their works. I've deliberately phrased that in a sort of provocative way, uh, hopefully making you squirm a little bit with discomfort, and I intend for us to see from the scripture exactly what we mean by that, what Paul is trying to say, and what we do not mean by that statement. You can also see from your notes that we will be spending some time thinking about how to respond correctly to a right understanding of the way that God will judge each and every one of us. So please uh, look in your Bible. I told you to turn, but I have not yet. First uh, Corinthians three. We're going to read verses 10 through 15 and then uh, the first five verses of chapter four. So hear the word of the Lord. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Chapter 4, verse 1. And this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. 
and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. For the Corinthians, uh, this was a call to quit viewing each other according to the flesh, like we talked about last month with the uh, flesh goggles, if you remember. Uh, for us, uh, in our day, we are more tempted to think that this judgment of God is simply not coming. We don't see it in our day-to-day lives. In my opinion, God has gotten rather lax uh, with how he is smiting people with lightning, especially on the interstates. It's not happening at the rate at which I would like to see it, it happening. Peter, in his letter, acknowledged that God's patient restraint could lead some to believe that judgment simply isn't coming, or maybe that God's standard isn't quite as high as some folks would have us believe. But uh, Paul wants us to see that judgment really is coming, and it is God who will be doing the judging and at the time of his choosing. That's not to say that human opinion is irrelevant. If you do good and people esteem you for it, that's good. If you are a jerk and people hate you for it, that's bad. Personal opinion uh, does matter. He's not saying that that's irrelevant. He's also not saying that we should uh, dispense with the uh, criminal justice system or that we should ignore our conscience. He's simply trying to draw our attention to something that we might ordinarily prefer not to think about. God is the ultimate judge of all things. Paul is wanting to remind us that true judgment, making an assessment about the eternal value of a person or a thing, that sort of judgment resides in God's hands alone. Now, let's go uh, straight at the throat of that intentionally controversial statement that I started with. God will judge everybody according to their works. Uh, If you look in your outline, you can see that the next three points, they're listed in order, of course, but they really form one comprehensive judgment uh, evaluation that God will uh, give for us. He will be judging what we do and how we do it and why we do it. There are hundreds and hundreds of verses on this subject, on the judgment and rewards, and uh, I was immensely helped in the organization of my thought process by an article that Aaron brought to my attention a couple years ago, and I saved it for the right time, and the right time was this week, Uh, and it was written by Jeff Ashley, and the uh, title is Are Christians Judged? Pastor Ashley is the discipleship resource pastor at the Village Church in Dallas, Texas, where God is doing a a great work, and uh, it was helpful to me. Uh, He started by highlighting some of these scriptures that most clearly state with uh, inescapable clarity that God will, in fact, judge all people. And uh, here's the highlight reel. From Matthew 12, people will give account for every word that they say. From Romans chapter 2, God will render to each according to his works. From 2 Corinthians 5, where we were last month, we will all appear before judgment and we will all receive what is due for what we have done. From 1 Peter 1, God judges impartially each one's deeds. From Revelation 20, at the end, the dead are judged by what is written in the books 
according to what they have done. And today we see here in 1 Corinthians 3 that each will receive wages and the Lord will judge and bring to light the things which are hidden and disclose the purposes of the heart. And uh, Pastor Ashley sums up the problem uh, very succinctly like this. We constantly preach that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And yet the scriptures state the puzzling truth that we are judged on the basis of our works. Christ paid for my sins on the cross, even the sins that I have not yet even committed. They've already been paid for. So how can I be judged for those sins? Likewise, the good things that I do are not enough to save me and they cannot outweigh my sins and they cannot keep God happy with me. And uh, those are those are all things that Jesus has himself taken care of at the cross. So what sort of judgment is it that Paul is talking about if Jesus has already got everything taken care of? Uh, Pastor Ashley organized his essay, and I'm quoting from him so much because it was so helpful and I really can't improve on it. Um, he had three key statements that he addressed. First, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. I want to be very, very clear on that. Second, our deeds reveal the reality of our faith. And third, our deeds determine the degree of our rewards. Our text from Corinthians this morning deals with that third point, that our uh, deeds reveal, our deeds determine the degree of our rewards. But because there's opportunity for confusion, I do want to make clear that second point, that our deeds reveal the reality of our faith. Our normal way of thinking about uh, such things, just default, the way we're, we're made, is that we want the good to outweigh the bad, and if the good outweighs the bad, then we pass, and we go to heaven. And that's reinforced year after year when we go to school, where you start a new term, and you bomb the first exam. And so you get serious, you buckle down, you do your homework, you study hard, and you crawl out of that hole, and you salvage a B-minus from the situation, and you pass. And so it's just natural natural, not right, but natural for us to think that God is looking for a uh, the sum value of our good deeds to outweigh the sum value of our bad deeds. But that is not what God is looking for. God is looking for faith, and in particular, evidence of faith that is borne out by the things that we do. He's looking for change in our lives, for repentance and for obedience, not because those things save us, but because they demonstrate that we are saved. John Piper put it like this. Our deeds will testify truly to the genuineness or absence of our faith. We must understand that this judgment, according to works, does not mean we earn our salvation. Our deeds do not earn, they exhibit our salvation. Our deeds are not the merit of our righteousness. They are the mark of our new life in Christ. Our deeds are not sufficient to deserve God's favor, but they do demonstrate our faith. So what does God see when he looks at, uh, for example, the life of the thief on the cross? Uh, he can look at that guy and see a lifetime of uh, sinful insurrection and rebellion and violence, sins that somebody must pay for. 
But he can also see that moment when he was on the cross next to Jesus, where the uh, truth of who Jesus was and what he was doing on that adjacent cross broke through this guy's mind and spiritual life took root. And he responded to it and acted on it and uh, repented and humbled himself before Jesus. So does he look at that moment of repentance and say, wow, look at that great work of faith that totally outweighs all the bad stuff that this guy did? No, that's not the way that God uh, performs this judgment. Faith isn't something that we do to earn God's approval. God instead says, I see this moment of conversion. I see that spiritual life has taken root in your life and I see the fruit of it. And I see that you responded to it and acted on it. It gives evidence to faith, and that is what God is looking for. He looks at what we do, at the deeds that are born out of, of uh, the faith that we have, uh, not so that he can balance them on a scale, but so that uh, he can see the results of faith in action. In our Corinthians text, Paul is not talking about that aspect of judgment. He wants to direct our attention to a different aspect of God's evaluation that maybe some of us don't even know is coming. We quoted Pastor Ashley as saying that not only do our deeds reveal the reality of our faith, but they determine the degree of our rewards. Once God has sorted out the sheep from the goats, as Jesus talked about in the parables, there will be rewards given on the basis of performance. And I know that this uh, maybe a completely new and foreign concept to some folks. And those of, uh, those of us who went through the treasure principle study earlier this year uh, might remember from lesson five and lesson six, those conversations that we had about, you know, what do we think about Jesus telling us to be generous so that we can have a reward in heaven? Our own small group had some lively discussions about just what we thought about being motivated by personal gain, because it seems like such a self-serving idea. It's not really the way that things are supposed to work. I didn't give Aaron uh, an anniversary gift and a Mother's Day gift and a birthday gift all in the last two weeks. I didn't give her great gifts because I was looking for something great on Father's Day, like, say, a helicopter, because that would be ridiculous. That's not the way things are supposed to work. Not the helicopter, just that motive is not the way things are supposed to work. Surely our service for the Lord um, should be done for simple obedience and gratitude. How can obedience be truly righteous and holy if it doesn't cost us something? Well, Jesus and Paul were quite comfortable with this idea of rewards. Take a look in our text 1 Corinthians 3. Let's look back in uh, last week's text in verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Paul and Apollos and you and me are doing our work for the Lord, and that is evidence of our faith in Christ. But not only that, we are earning wages in the service of our master. God's salvation is a free gift. A gift, okay, a gift that is not earned. But when we do work in his service, then we are accruing wages to our benefit, rewards that will be given to us when the time comes. When uh, you're at work, you go to work and you earn a paycheck. When the accounting gremlins sign your paycheck, you don't write your boss a thank you note because you earned those wages. It was not a, a gift. Wages are something that are earned. The wages of sin is death. We did the sin, and so we get the wages, which is death. But the gift, the gift of God is eternal life. 
And Paul is saying that while our salvation is a free gift of grace from God, we are storing up rewards for ourselves in heaven by the way that we do our work. So what kind of work does God honor? Continue looking in verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds on that foundation. Let each one take care how he builds. Using the metaphor of constructing a building, Paul is telling us to be careful how we do our work. God is looking at the way in which we work. Verse 11, each one should build on the foundation of Christ. Don't go doing your own thing. Don't try to build a hut in the backyard. Build on the foundation. Stick to the pattern that's given to us in Scripture. Verse 12, use quality materials because only quality materials will last and stand the test of time. Verse 13, there will be a time of testing, perhaps a moment of crisis or perhaps simply the long endurance challenge of a lifetime. But the value of our work will be demonstrated. Uh, we'll explore this metaphor of building on a foundation and building with quality materials on top of it later this summer. But for now, uh, see simply that the testing is going to be like fire. Some things fire destroys wood and hay and straw. Other things fire purifies precious metals and precious stones whose beauty shines more brilliantly for having the impurities burned away. You can see from the beginning of the book to the end, God uses this uh, concept of being a refiner, refining with fire as he works on us and builds in us the likeness of Christ. Continue in verse 14. Those whose works stand the test of time, who survive that crisis, he will receive a reward. In verse 15, those whose work doesn't make it, that don't prove fruitful in the end. Well, what would you expect to see here? That they'll receive a rebuke? That they will be punished? No, these are Christians whose failures and omissions and sins have been covered at the cross and taken care of already. Instead, there is simply... Um, empty handedness, missed opportunity. There's uh, when a person escapes from a fire, there's uh, gratitude and relief at having escaped with one's life and uh, not uh, facing death and destruction. But there's also that great sense of loss and destitution. Uh, similarly, this person here in verse 15, when their works don't stand up in the, uh, the test of time, they don't face punishment or banishment or embarrassment or condemnation. They do have a loss of rewards. They don't face the fear of the future because they have been saved and they are in heaven. But it's a missed opportunity and a foregone chance to earn a reward for themselves. It's uh, I had a chance for something. I missed out. I blew it. I didn't do what I might have done. I didn't do it well. And so I missed out on something. Now, when I was um, working on this sermon and passed it along to Erin to read so she can help me edit it, as she always does, she said, Joshua, Josh, right here, you need an illustration, something, some sort of example to explain what it is that you're talking about, that, you know, these people think that they're doing good works, but they're wrong. They're not doing them in the right way. And so they suffer loss and don't get these rewards you really need something here and it should help with the sermon and preferably it would be uh, personal and golly, it'd be nice if it was funny, too. And she said, hey, I've got just the thing. How about you tell them about that incident that happened in our house over the last couple of weeks? And I fought long and hard against that idea because uh, that incident that happened in our house, I was still upset about it. And I didn't want to be thinking about it, much less 
preaching about it. And uh, secondly, the story is unflattering, mostly to me. And third, I'm not even sure it works as an illustration, but we'll give it a go and uh, you guys can, can be the judge. Three weeks ago, May the 6th, Aaron makes a dessert for the admin team meeting that we have after church. There are leftovers because six people come to the meeting and three of them are on a diet. So there's leftovers and I have one piece left over for me that's put in a container in the pantry. And my instructions are to eat it on Monday or at the end of the day on Monday to clean out the container. And so, of course, uh, I promptly forgot all about it. And uh, I, it's like the conversation never even happened because I could see that container on the shelf and I thought, that's not mine, so you leave it alone. In the Walker household, you do not touch somebody else's food, so it belongs to somebody. It's not mine. Leave it alone. I thought I was doing the right thing. I was leaving it alone, but I was wrong. So 16, later, 16 days later, she, she asks me, What's up with the container of moldy dessert? That, why, why haven't you done anything with it? And I acknowledge my failure and my mistake, and I resolve to put it behind me. And then on the 19th day, she says, this better be a sermon illustration, because otherwise I do not know what you're thinking. Because, of course, it was still there. Okay, so let's review the situation. I thought I was doing the right thing, but I was wrong. And to the extent that my forgetfulness and thoughtlessness was sinful, it has been covered. I do not believe that Aaron is going to punish me or banish me or assess any penalties against me for my behavior because she is both gracious and forgiving. But I missed an opportunity to serve my wife. And I missed that opportunity to eat the dessert and enjoy her cooking and let her know that her efforts were appreciated and uh, fruitful. And I missed the chance to empty that container so that it could be filled with something else, some other delicious item for me to enjoy. And I'm not trying to blow this out of proportion, but hopefully perhaps you can see that I thought I was doing the right thing, but I was wrong, so I missed out on some rewards that would accrue to my benefit, even though I'm not any worse off than I was before. Does that make any sense? Does that help at all? Some, maybe. Okay. I do want to clear up the idea that there's not going to be anybody that's disappointed in heaven for being there or having lost out on rewards. And the, the joy of heaven is going to be being with the Savior and uh, the whole no pain, no death, no suffering, no tears, everything new, forever, enjoying God's presence. That's, it's going to be great. Nobody's going to be resentful or jealous that somebody else has more rewards for the way that they did their work. Let's continue. Chapter 4, verse 1. We are servants and stewards. In this case, uh, a steward is someone who is entrusted with something of value uh, so that they can use it for the benefit of the person who owns it. And in our case, we are entrusted with the gospel of Jesus, and we are to use it for the glory of God and the good of his people. Verse 2, stewards must prove trustworthy. The uh, words we use for this at Prairie View are faithfulness and diligence. Build on the foundation, being faithful, and do good work. Be diligent about it. Stay faithful to the pattern of Scripture and work hard at it. Do the right things and do things right. Faithfulness and diligence. And then comes verse 5. The Lord will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. A uh, verse that makes me feel more chilly than I already do in this room. 
Thank you for fixing the air conditioners, Jeff. They are working just great, wonderfully well. Bring a sweater next week. Not only will God look at what we do and uh, how we do it, he will also evaluate our motives. Being God, he is uniquely able to judge and see each person's motives. Uh, that's something that's terribly difficult for us to do with each other, uh, although it's uh, the longer you get to know somebody, the more you can understand what it is that makes them tick. Uh, but God will be able to see whether the good works we do are born out of genuine faith or whether these supposed good works are actually cover and camouflage for a still sinful heart. Matthew 25, Jesus separated the sheep from the goats on the basis of what their faith in Jesus had led them to do. You know, visit the sick and feed the hungry and mercy ministries and things like that. But in Matthew 7, Jesus says to some of those that he condemned, they come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do great things on your behalf? Didn't we work hard? Didn't we do the right things and do them well? And he will say to them, I never knew you because he can see their motives and see that they were not done out of uh, faith and repentance, but out of earthly motives. Uh, Scottish Presbyterian Alexander White, a gentleman I had never heard of until yesterday, uh, and so my lovely research assistant brought him to my attention, said this. Splendid deeds that are blazoned abroad by a thousand trumpets are but splendid sins in God's judgment unless they are done out of a secret motive of true and genuine goodness. Fortunately, God is also able to look at uh, even the smallest act of kindness done from a heart that seeks his glory and uh, recognize that motive as pure and give it the commendation that it is uh, worthy of. To show you what I mean, let's take an example of a very simple situation that happened right here uh, in this building last week that only God can judge rightly, but uh, I think we can take a stab at it as well. Last week, out in the lobby, I was talking with uh, James Mayer, and he gave me the number one best compliment that a preacher can ever receive. He said, I really liked how you took what was in the Bible and applied it right into our lives, into our situation, and helped us understand what to do and what to think about it. You know, more or less paraphrasing. That's what I heard him say. Maybe it was just wishful thinking on my part. Uh, the reason that that was so exciting to hear was because that's exactly what I want to do every time I get up here to preach. Open the Bible, show you what it says about Jesus and how we should respond correctly. So let's consider what were James's motives. Maybe he wanted to appear spiritual and so that I would think even more highly of him than I already do. Hey, this guy is looking for the right things in a sermon. Way to go. If James said that's to look good and appear spiritual, well, mission accomplished, and that's all that he can hope for. Matthew 6, Jesus said, if you give, if you fast, if you pray for the purpose of being seen by others... That's all you're going to get. You have received your reward in full. There's other bad reasons that he uh, could have said what he did. He could have been looking for praise. Hey, thanks for noticing, James. Good pickup on that. Uh, he could have been flattering me, saying to my face what he would never dream of saying behind my back. Or uh, maybe he was just trying to be polite. I'll say what I know that he wants to hear so that he will go away and bug somebody else. None of those <laughs> motives would be particularly commendable. 
But having gotten to know James, as we have over the last six to seven years, we can be fairly confident what his motive was. He said what he did so that I would be encouraged and thanked and know that I was appreciated in my efforts and that I would be prepared and motivated to go back to my study and do it again this week. And if that was his motive, then we can be sure that we will see not just me thanking him for his words, but also the Savior on, uh, on, the, on the day, because those words will never be forgotten. Of course, if he'd known that I was going to make such a big deal out of it, he probably would have said nothing at all. <laughs> so that was a good example about James. How about a, a slightly more murky example from my own life? Why do I serve as an elder? Why do I preach? Is it for purely virtuous reasons? Or perhaps is it because I want the respect and esteem of other Christians? Is it so that I can appear to be humble and mature? Uh, do I want influence in an organization to be uh, a big fish in a small pond? Or do I work hard so that my godly wife will think better of me? Or so that I can have the esteem of uh, my father, who is very well respected for his work? Uh, do I simply want to rise to the top of whatever organization that I happen to to, to be in? Or maybe do I actually have a love for God and for his word and for his people and want to see you strengthened and encouraged each week from, uh, from the Bible and what we see of Christ here? What happens when I fail? What if I uh, have a, I've prepared a below average sermon and deliver it badly? Am I embarrassed and ashamed because of my failure in God's eyes? Or am I ashamed and embarrassed because of my failure before your eyes? What if James doesn't say anything nice to me after the sermon this week? Paul said that it mattered very little to him what other people thought of his work because he knew he was going to be judged by God. But I can't say that very often. It matters a great deal to me what you guys think. And Paul could say that he wasn't aware of anything against himself. Uh, but I can't say that hardly ever. I, I look at my motives and they are mixed. And I can see how they fluctuate even from hour to hour. This is something that I've been uh, puzzling over a lot over the last year or so, both on my own personal behalf and as a parent. What do you do when you discover selfish motives? How do you change your motives? How do you stop wanting something that you want, which is bad, and start wanting something which is good that you want to desire, but you do not desire yet as much as you want to want to yet? Right? So far, all I've been able to come up with is uh, sort of generalities. You know, the more time I spend with Jesus in prayer and in the word, the more he'll rub off on me and the more pure my motives are going to be. I, I confess in prayer the motives that are selfish and sinful, and I cultivate through prayer uh, the uh, motives which are pleasing to God and ask him to help me in that direction. And these prayers work, of course, not so much by changing God, but by changing me. When I am praying for the good of God's people and, uh, and God's glory, then that's what I start to care about. And when I'm asking God to help free me from uh, the desire to exalt myself and make much of myself, I discover that very often he um, starts to make that happen, perhaps through methods I might not appreciate in the short term. Uh, I certainly don't want to give you a bunch of information from the Bible without helping you think 
personally about how this applies, not just to me, but but to you as as well. So let's consider three ways that we can get this right or perhaps get this wrong, because if you know that a performance evaluation is in your future, then it just makes sense to alter your behavior so you get the uh, the results that you want. First, uh, keep your eyes focused on the right place. If you want nothing more than to have comfort and security and happiness in this life, then by all means, do not think about what comes beyond. And if you uh, want to make sure your focus is only on that which is seen, then do not let yourself think about that which is unseen. If, on the other hand, you want to make sure that you uh, maximize your upside potential in the life to come, then do not allow yourself to be distracted by temporary concerns. We saw this in the treasure principle, that we are visitors in a land, not our home. And the way that we work in this time, in this world, will affect the degree to which we can enjoy our homecoming when we go to be with the Savior. The Christian's home is with Christ, not here. So use the time and energy and resources that God has entrusted to you in a way that you can live with eternally. The work that you do this week affects your enjoyment of eternity and the rewards that you will receive from God. When you go out into your workplace, into the classroom, when you go home and spend time with your family, you go to the gym, you're in your neighborhood having that cookout, the way that you do your work, the how and the why and what you do, will be evaluated for the purpose of of giving you eternal rewards. So remember that as you go through your week this week. Second, know why you're doing what you're doing. If you are straining hard to make sure that uh, you're good enough for heaven and you're working really hard to make sure that God still likes you, you will never succeed because Jesus took care of that already and your efforts in that direction are in some degree insulting to the work that he did on the cross. Likewise, if you are uh, working to earn the esteem and uh, respect or friendship or love of another human being, know that they will never be able to give you what you want because we weren't meant to uh, fulfill each other's needs in that way. But if you wish to be truly satisfied with your relationships on earth and and your relationship with God, then remember where you stand before God. God has given you a free gift of grace, reconciling you to himself and Jesus. And he has made it possible for you to enjoy fellowship with him and with his people now and in eternity as you grow in the likeness of his son. It's worth your while to think hard about your motives. You might not like what you find and you might struggle to change them. But uh, if you don't think about why you're doing what you're doing, you'll you'll never be able to to change what it is that uh, to change your motives and, and help them be what God would have them to be. Lastly, when you consider the performance evaluation that is to come. Uh, know how to judge your own standing before God. It is possible, and this is important, I think, it's possible for a person who is truly God's to be deceived into doubting whether or not they truly belong to him. Likewise, it's possible for somebody who is still lost in their sins to deceive themselves into thinking that God's okay with them. Uh, to see ourselves clearly, to see ourselves as God sees us, 
requires the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Today is Pentecost Sunday. It's seven weeks after Easter. And seven weeks after the first Easter, God sent the Holy Spirit to dwell with his people. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we can come to faith and repentance in Christ in the first place. It's only through the Holy Spirit that we can uh, look at ourselves with clear, sober vision and, uh, and see where we stand with him. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we often go to that verse that says, examine yourself, look at yourself, make sure you're not coming to the table with a, a spirit that displeases God. It is God's Holy Spirit that confirms to the heart of the believer that they are, in fact, uh, one of God's children, because although they are not what they will be one day, they are not yet or they are not still what they were. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to discern between simply turning over a new leaf that doesn't lead to any true lasting change and doesn't flow from true faith. The Holy Spirit can help us discern between that and the true sonship that comes from being one of uh, God's children. There is a kind of faith that does not lead to works of obedience and repentance because it's just... A, uh, a sense in the mind to certain facts. And if your faith hasn't changed you, then it is not a faith that can save you. The kind of faith that is truly trusting in Jesus as Savior leads to the kind of response that truly honors him as Lord. Only the Holy Spirit can help you know where you stand before God and enable you to examine and even change your motives. So as you spend time uh, this week with the uh, Lord and the word and prayer, keep an eye to these three things, not because they are three easy steps to eternal rewards, but because they form the foundation of uh, a lifetime of fruitful ministry, maintaining an eternal perspective, examining your motives and resting in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can see in your word that you are at work among your people, that you are drawing people to yourself and saving them and revealing to them uh, who it is that your son is and what he did in our behalf when he saved us on the cross. And thank you that you sent your spirit uh, so that we can uh, see Jesus as he is and so that you can be working in our lives on an ongoing basis to transform us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that you have told us in your word not just that there will be fiery trials in this life, but there are wonderful rewards in the life to come. Not just the joy of seeing your face and being with you and being free from the presence of sin, but also the rewards that you will give to those who uh, stand the test of time and persevere in the faith and who have loved your appearing and all the different things that you tell us about in Scripture that is the sort of work that you approve of and will reward on that day. Lord, please be with your people this afternoon and this week that we can remember what it is that you have told us, what it is you have showed us in your word, and that we can be living our lives in a way that brings glory to you and is accruing for us great rewards in the age to come. Lord, it's in the name of your great son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.